Chapter Eight of Celebrated Crimes, Volume Four, Part Two, Urban Grandier by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight. The exposure of the plot was most prejudicial to the prosperity of the Ursuline community. Spurious possession, far from bringing to their convent an increase of subscriptions and enhancing their reputation as Mignon had promised, had ended for them in open shame, while in private they suffered from straitened circumstances. For the parents of their boarders hastened to withdraw their daughters from the convent, and the nuns, in losing their pupils, lost their sole source of income. Their fall in the estimation of the public filled them with despair, and it leaked out that they had had several altercations with their director, during which they reproached him for having, by making them commit such a great sin, overwhelmed them with infamy, and reduced them to misery instead of securing for them the great spiritual and temporal advantages he had promised them. Mignon, although devoured by hate, was obliged to remain quiet, but he was none the less as determined as ever to have revenge, and as he was one of those men who never give up while a gleam of hope remains, and whom no waiting can tire, he bided his time, avoiding notice, apparently resigned to circumstances, but keeping his eyes fixed on Grandier, ready to seize on the first chance of recovering possession of the prey that had escaped his hands, and unluckily the chance soon presented itself. It was now 1633. Richelieu was at the height of his power, carrying out his work of destruction, making castles fall before him where he could not make heads fall, in the spirit of John Knox's words, destroy the nests and the crows will disappear. Now one of these nests was the crenellated castle of Laudon, and Richelieu had therefore ordered its demolition. The person appointed to carry out this order was a man such as those whom Louis XI had employed fifty years earlier to destroy the feudal system, and Robespierre one hundred and fifty years later to destroy the aristocracy. Every woodman needs an axe, every reaper a sickle, and Richelieu found the instrument he required in de Laubardemont, councillor of state. But he was an instrument full of intelligence, detected by the manner in which he was wielded, the moving passion of the wielder and adapting his whole nature with marvellous dexterity to gratify that passion according to the character of him whom it possessed. Now by a rough and ready impetuosity, now by a deliberate and hidden advance, equally willing to strike with the sword or to poison by calumny, as the man who moved him lusted for the blood or sought to accomplish the dishonour of his victim. Monsieur de Laubardemont arrived at Laudon during the month of August 1633, and in order to carry out his mission addressed himself to Sir Mimon de Silly, prefect of the town, that old friend of the cardinals whom Mignon and Bada, as we have said, had impressed so favorably. Mamin saw in the arrival of Laubardemont a special intimation that it was the will of heaven that the seemingly lost cause of those in whom he took such a warm interest should ultimately triumph. He presented Mignon and all his friends to Monsieur Laubardemont, who received them with much cordiality. They talked of the mother superior, who was a relation, as we have seen, of Monsieur de Laubardemont, and exaggerated the insult offered her by the decree of the archbishop, saying it was an affront to the whole family, and before long, the one thing alone which occupied the thoughts of the conspirators and the counsellor was how best to draw upon Grandier the anger of the cardinal duke. A way soon opened. The queen mother, Marie de Medici, had among her attendants a woman called Hamon, to whom... Having once had occasion to speak, she had taken a fancy and given a post near her person. In consequence of this whim, Hamon came to be regarded as a person of some importance in the queen's household. Hamon was a native of Laudon, and had passed the greater part of her youth there with her own people, who belonged to the lower classes. 
Grandier had been her confessor, and she attended his church, and as she was lively and clever he enjoyed talking to her, so that at length an intimacy sprang up between them. It so happened at a time when he and the other ministers were in momentary disgrace that a satire full of biting wit and raillery appeared, directed especially against the cardinal, and this satire had been attributed to Hamon, who was known to share, as was natural, her mistress's hatred of Richelieu. Protected as she was by the queen's favor, the cardinal had found it impossible to punish Hamon, but he still cherished a deep resentment against her. It now occurred to the conspirators to accuse Grandier of being the real author of the satire, and it was asserted that he had learned from Hamon all the details of the cardinal's private life, the knowledge of which gave so much point to the attack on him. If they could once succeed in making Richelieu believe this, Grandier was lost. This plan being decided on, Monsieur de Lombardemont was asked to visit the convent, and the devils, knowing what an important personage he was, flocked thither to give him a worthy welcome. Accordingly, the nuns had attacks of the most indescribably violent convulsions, and M. de Laubardemont returned to Paris convinced as to the reality of their possession. The first word the councillor of state said to the cardinal about Urbain Grandier showed him that he had taken useless trouble in inventing the story about the satire, for by the bare mention of his name he was able to arouse the cardinal's anger to any height he wished. The fact was that, when Richelieu had been prior of Cousset, he and Grandier had had a quarrel on a question of etiquette, the latter as priest of Laudon having claimed precedence over the prior, and carried his point. The cardinal had noted the affront in his blood-stained tablets, and at the first hint de la Bardemont found him as eager to bring about Grandier's ruin as was the councillor himself. De la Bardemont was at once granted the following commission. Sir de la Bardemont, councillor of state and privy councillor, will betake himself to Laudon and to whatever other places may be necessary, to institute proceedings against Grandier on all the charges formerly preferred against him, and on other facts which have since come to light, touching the possession by evil spirits of the Ursuline nuns of Laudon, and of other persons, who are said likewise to be tormented of devils through the evil practices of the said Grandier. He will diligently investigate everything from the beginning that has any bearing either on the said possession or on the exorcisms, and will forward to us his report thereon, and the reports and other documents sent in by former commissioners and delegates, and will be present at all future exorcisms and take proper steps to obtain evidence of the said facts, that they may be clearly established and, above all, will direct, institute, and carry through the said proceedings against Grandier and all others who have been involved with him in the said case, until definitive sentence be passed, and in spite of any appeal or counter-charge this cause will not be delayed, but without prejudice to the right of appeal in other causes, on account of the nature of the crimes, and no regard will be paid to any request for postponement made by the said Grandier. His Majesty commands all governors, provincial lieutenant-generals, bailiffs, seneschals, and other municipal authorities, and all subjects whom it may concern, to give every assistance in arresting and imprisoning all persons whom it may be necessary to put under constraint, if they shall be required so to do." Furnished with this order, which was equivalent to a condemnation, de la Bardemont arrived at Laudon, the 5th of December, 1633, at nine o'clock in the evening, and to avoid being seen he alighted in a suburb at the house of one Maitre Paul Aubin, king's usher and son-in-law of Memin de Silly. His arrival was kept so secret that neither Grandier nor his friends knew of it, but Memin, Herve Menau, and Mignon were notified and immediately called on him. De la Bardemont received them commission in hand, but broad as it was, it did not seem to them sufficient, for it contained no order for Grandier's arrest, and Grandier might fly. 
De La Bonnemont, smiling at the idea that he could be so much in fault, drew from his pocket an order in duplicate, in case one copy should be lost, dated like the commission, November 30th, signed Louis, and countersigned Philippot. It was conceived in all the following terms. Louis, etc., etc., we have entrusted these presents to Sir de la Baudemont, privy councillor, to empower the said Sir de la Baudemont to arrest Grandier and his accomplices and imprison them in a secure place, with orders to all provost, marshals, and other officers, and to all our subjects in general to lend whatever assistance is necessary to carry out above order, and they are commanded by these presents to obey all orders given by the said Sieur and all governors and lieutenants-general are also hereby commanded to furnish the said sieur with whatever he aid he may require at their hands this document being the completion of the other it was immediately resolved in order to show that they had the royal authority at their back and as a preventative measure to arrest grandier at once without any preliminary investigation they hoped by this step to intimidate any official who might still be inclined to take Grandier's part, and any witness who might be disposed to testify in his favor. Accordingly, they immediately sent for Guillaume Aubin, Sieur de Lagrange, and Provost-Lieutenant. De la Bonnemont communicated to him the commission of the cardinal and the order of the king, and requested him to arrest Grandier early next morning. Monsieur de Lagrange could not deny the two signatures and answered that he would obey but as he foresaw from their manner of going to work that the proceedings about to be instituted would be an assassination and not a fair trial he sent in spite of being a distant connection of my man whose daughter was married to his lagrange's brother to warn grandier of the orders he had received but grandier with his usual intrepidity while thanking lagrange for his generous message sent back word that secure in his innocence and relying on the justice of god he was determined to stand his ground so grandier remained and his brother who slept beside him declared that his sleep that night was as quiet as usual the next morning he rose as was his habit at six o'clock took his breviary in his hand and went out with the intention of attending matins at the church of st croix he had hardly put his foot over the threshold before lagrange in the presence of mamin mignon and of the other conspirators who had come out to gloat over the sight arrested him in the name of the king he was at once placed in the custody of Jean Pouget, an archer in His Majesty's guard, and of the archers of the provosts of Laudon and Chinon, to be taken to the castle at Angers. Meanwhile, a search was instituted and the royal seal affixed to the doors of his apartments, to his presses, his other articles of furniture, in fact, to everything and place in that house, but nothing was found that tended to compromise him except an essay against the celibacy of priests, and two sheets of paper whereon were written in another hand than his some love poems in the taste of that time. End of chapter 8 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia